Hey everybody, you're listening to episode 22 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're sitting down with Peter and Kendra Amico. guys. Welcome to the podcast. My name's Keelan Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. We had the chance to sit down with Peter and Kendra Amico, an economist and ER doctor by trade. And man, every part of their story radiates the generosity of the gospel, from how they handle their finances to their strong passion for foster care. Not only has God given them a deep heart for generosity, but he's equipped them with a whole arsenal of creative tax and giving strategies that we've never heard on the show before. One of the more intriguing approaches they share involves setting up a personal 501c3 nonprofit with another couple or two in order to allow them to write off all the spontaneous giving they were doing, such as covering bills, auto repair, and medical expenses for people in need around their community. Don't worry, they'll break down all the details for us. Aside from their financial lives, the Amicos are parents to six through birth, foster care, and adoption. They discuss how foster care and adoption are closely intertwined with generosity, and how God has worked radically in their lives through that process. We were so blessed to be able to talk with them on the show. Stay tuned because you are not going to want to miss it. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, then you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The Sprint Guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. And with that, let's get started. So we're here with Peter and Kendra Amico. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Happy to be here. So can you just get us started with a little bit of backstory on where you came from and how you got to where you are today? So Peter and I currently live in Orlando, Florida. We moved here most recently from Boston multiple years ago, five years ago. And that's where we were both doing our education. We currently have six children in Orlando, a mix of foster and adopted and biological children. So while Peter and I were in Boston, I was doing my residency in emergency medicine at the time, and Peter was finishing up his PhD in health economics and started working then in Boston, and we transitioned both our careers then down here to Florida. At that time, we we launched into the education world really right after we got married, and I think we had kind of put a pause on our faith really during that time of our lives. We had both grown up in the church and both had, I would say, heartfelt belief in in our faiths previously, but then struggled to continue that in the world of higher education. And so we weren't actively pursuing that in that time of our lives. I think a lot of the values, though, from having grown up in the church continued for us. And so we were actually still giving on a smaller scale to things that we cared about initially to the foster world as we became foster parents. 
and probably some other smaller things in Boston, um, maybe supporting students in medical education and international things that we are involved in. But I think we, when we re-engaged with our faith, and that happened probably two and a half or three years ago down here in Orlando, that change in our faith simultaneously paralleled a change in our giving. Those two went very much hand in hand. I think part of that is that the generosity thing is not just like a segment of like we give because we're Christians, but I think more of this holistic, this is what faith lived out means, generous financially, generous with our time and our talents, generous with our family, all of this. And so I think that journey has gone hand in hand with becoming very much reengaged in our faith. I think, too, when we thought about how we wanted to give our initial financial conversations, again, apart from our faith, were about we were I was a resident. And with that, I had a very fixed income. But I knew guaranteed that once I finished residency, I would have a tremendous growth in my income. And unlike other people where you don't know how your job will grow, that was pretty much set. And so we were already having conversations about how would our lives change and could we just not escalate our lifestyle? And some of that was just about being financially prudent and paying off debt and not just going up and up and up endlessly like so many people around us. But then that has transitioned to saying we live very comfortably on and we lived very comfortably on this lower income. And sure, while there's been adjustments with more kids and whatnot, that type of mindset that we already had then has allowed us to not escalate even as my income grows and to then start giving that money away. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting thing that all physicians have in common is that knowing at a very specific time point, your income is going to go up significantly from a resident income to a attending salary. So it's really fun getting to hear your guys' story, knowing that I'm going through that same process myself right now. And that's been a very integral part of my story, which I've shared previously. As you were sharing, I was curious, what was it that kind of spurred on kind of reconnecting with your faith when you guys went through that process? So when we moved down to Orlando, basically... For the years of higher education, all of our friends, all of the smartest people we knew didn't think Christianity had any validity. And those are some of the like more generous and kind people we knew. And so Kendra and I both grew up in Christian homes that were stoutly Christian in terms of they really loved the Bible. But in many ways, I, I don't know, in, our parents weren't the most generous people we knew. They weren't the kind of most it didn't seem to be like this thing that transformed them. It was very important and very genuine, but at the same time, not kind of life transforming. And so I think for us, it, it was it was kind of easy to write off Christianity as this kind of crutch or this thing that people needed who weren't smart enough to kind of understand. And so we moved down to Orlando five years ago, and <laughs> I joke about this. God pursuing us. And so it's a funny story. We were looking to to get a boat. We have a lake two houses down from here with a boat ramp. And so we really were like, hey, we want our kids to grow up jet skiing and whatever, or, you know, learning how to wakeboard and stuff. And so my 
one of my good friends from college, he was working at Generous Giving at the time. And he said, hey, you should ask my boss, Todd Harper. He has a boat. So I asked Todd, hey, you know, like, do you have any tips on buying a boat? And Todd says, oh, actually, I, I own a boat with another guy. Are you interested in buying in to be a one third owner? And so <laughs> they live on the, the third guy lives on the lake. So I'm like, hey, man, this is a great financial decision to own a third of a boat instead of a whole boat. Turns out the other guy, he's now the president of Campus Crusade. Todd was the president of Generous Giving. And, and in many ways, I mean, just God kept like throwing these people at us. You know, there's a million other stories. But, but in many ways, we just got to see people whose lives were transformed. And I think for us, that was, that was a huge part of the path back for us. So good guys to own a boat with, too. <laughs> so what was that process like? Uh, once you kind of re-engaged with your faith, it sounds like you were connected to generous giving probably pretty early on if you knew Todd Harper already at that point. How did the generosity side of things kind of come alongside your growing faith at that point? Well, I think it was fun for us to watch others be generous. And and I think we always kind of had some of that urge. You know, like Kendra said, we we really did channel our kind of living on a lower standard of living than our peers, but kind of channeled it much more towards savings for the future kind of for us. And seeing people, like some of the folks in our small group, just giving very generously beyond kind of anything that we were used to, I, I think was kind of a prompting. And then we ended up going to the conference, the Generous Giving Conference in Atlanta a couple of years ago. That was a big turning point for us, actually, the conference itself. Yeah, I remember when Peter signed us up to attend the conference in the fall. I hadn't recommitted my life to Christ, and I was like, no chance am I going to that. And then in like the two or three months beforehand, you know, God had changed my heart. And and so we went. And so, you know, we were very, I was very new. It's a funny position to be in, really, to like have grown up and have so much knowledge, really, and then, but not to have the heart piece and then to add that back in and then still be like, oh, but I am a baby Christian. But I remember at that conference, just having a lot of conversations with our friends who we went with, who are in our kind of life community group, who, who were very instrumental in us returning to our faith anyway, but having a lot of conversations about what their giving looked like or what their spontaneous giving looked like and hearing their stories and their enjoyment in it just as kind of idea generation. And so Peter and I started talking a lot more about those, just the logistics of how we would do that. And while we were at that conference, then Tim Keller was a surprise guest. And so he referenced this verse that's been very transformative for us. Then we just started looking for ways and how to, how to do this. And so it actually was easier than we thought it would be looking and finding opportunities. And it started to become embedded in part of our, our rhythm of our lives. And that type of giving, the like spontaneous scattering type of giving is fun, honestly. And not that the point of giving is to feel good, but it's just, it's fun. You just get to spontaneously bless people, whether they know it or not, or it's anonymous, or it's just fun to look for opportunities and be like, oh, I can meet that need right now and then take care of it. And so there was that piece. And then I think around the same time of that conference, 
Peter proposed this idea of us giving a certain percentage. And so he said, let's give 40% of our income. And I was like, uh, okay. So Peter proposed this idea of giving 40% of everything that we brought in income wise. And that seemed aggressive to me. And he said, well, let's just try it out. We'll only commit to one year. And I said, fine, we can do that. And so that was three years ago. That was the same time as that conference. And so, or now we're on the third iteration and it still is work to do that, or it still is a commitment. And that's sometimes less fun (laughs) than the spontaneous giving. But I still like that we're doing that. And I like that we've shifted the idea of control as we take that money and put it into savings for us. Just, you know, why? Why do I need all that? I don't really need all that. But I like knowing I have it and start actively looking for ways that we can give wisely and with that money. So Kendra, as you were talking, I have to ask, Keelan and I both kind of took our wives through this process and God bless them for, you know, putting up with us and all of our ideas and all the long conversations and discussions that we had with them. But can you share a little more about, you said you thought that 40% was a little aggressive and you were like, uh, okay, I guess we're doing this. Can you share a little more about what that was like for you? You know, I would say one of the great things about Peter has been his leadership in our lives and our relationship in a lot of these like big idea, value driven ways. I think that's one of the biggest things that he brings to our family and to me personally. And I think maybe there's been a pattern of ideas like that in our lives that I would have said, oh, that's interesting. Let's think about that. And then I wouldn't have come back to it on my own. So for another example, it would be foster care that I always wanted to adopt. And I thought I was working doing international stuff. And I thought, oh, we'd adopt internationally. But I was in residency. And Peter said, well, we live in Boston and there are kids in Boston who need a home. Let's look into fostering and adopting right here in our community. And I think I would have said, that's great. I love that idea. And then I would have let life and residency and schedule get in the way. But something about Peter, who's like, I've signed us up for classes. I've written down this number, you know, and I, I think that's kind of how the rhythm of our relationship that I knew it was a a good idea and I knew it would be challenging, but we could do it. And so in part, I was like, "Eh." and then I was like, okay, (laughs) so maybe that's not a lot of thought and just responding. Yeah, I would say also, Kendra's always very open to my ideas. And it's not, it's not like a hard sell. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, more than one conversation to say, yeah, let's give 40% of our gross. And she was like, okay, you know, and uh, with foster care, kind of the same story, uh, you know, and I think while I may come up with the ideas, you know, implementation certainly could never happen without Kendra. And so it, it really is a good partnership and you can't do it with one spouse in and one out. Yeah, definitely on both of those accounts. <laughs> those are two big ones. <laughs> Yeah, my wife and I are foster parents as well, and I can definitely resonate. That's a all-in commitment 
I, I do want to come back to foster care in a couple minutes because I, I want to hear some of your thoughts on that. But before we get to that, Peter, I was hoping maybe you could share a little bit more about that initial generous giving conference, kind of what effect that had on you and how you came to that conviction for the 40% giving. Yeah, I don't know where the 40% came from. I think it just, you know, I'm, I'm a very kind of, you know, I'm, I really like personal finance. I love digging into this stuff and figure out the best way to kind of like move money to tax deferred, blah, blah, blah. So I knew we had the margin. It was more just a question of, do we keep saving 60% or does it drop to 20? You know, and that was kind of the decision point. So it was kind of like a number that I knew was a push would make us uncomfortable, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to bankrupt us. So, you know, that's kind of where that came from. It wasn't any kind of aha moment. But I think from the conference, the big thing for me was because like, I'm an economist, I'm this like, I really like to figure stuff out and, and not, you know, I want to give well and strategically a good ROI. And, and for all those years before we had been putting money into our donor advised fund, accumulating, watching it grow, you know, it's invested in the donor advised fund. So even like the principal we had put in was growing as well. And but we weren't dispersing a lot of it. And so Tim Keller, as Kendra was saying, he, he spoke on this verse on Proverbs 11.24, which says, one gives freely, or another word for that is to scatter. So one gives freely or scatters, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds unduly and only suffers want. And so it's this idea of kind of like the person who gives freely actually ends up having more. And, and I don't take that as a health and wealth kind of thing, you know, it, giving money but receiving other things in kind like joy <laughs> and contentment whereas the person who hoards actually is the one who suffers a lot and so for us i think it was a kind of eye opener of the kind of kingdom economics and this idea that if we give generously we actually that's better for us like and and but also what was challenging about what keller was talking about was this idea that this word means to scatter kind of promiscuously the way that it's used throughout the Old Testament. And so the idea for us was kind of like, oh, okay, so not all our giving has to necessarily be to the highest ROI. You know, I forget if it's one of these, it's not Charity Navigator, but one of these sites that people in the kind of financial independence world use, they rank by kind of like mosquito nets are the most cost effective thing you can give to essentially. But to change the lens to if we feel God's calling us to give something, we just give to it, whether that's somebody whose car broke down or whatever. And so we we actually created a 501c3 called Pizar, uh, which is the, the Hebrew word for to give generously. And we began to say, how can we serve people in our community who we wouldn't have typically thought to give to before? And one one example that comes to mind is when COVID started, our small group said, let's think about how we can serve our neighbors. And so we put up yard signs all over town saying, hey, if you need help or if you want to help others, we, we kind of want to be a connecting point and ended up raising $50,000, distributing it to about 50 different individuals for all kinds of things that I would see as irresponsible promiscuous giving things that I don't think probably had the highest ROI in the world. But at the same time, I think growing our faith and our trust in God, that he is the ultimate one in charge, not us. And and that 
that responsibility is off my shoulders <laughs> to, to make sure that everything I do is the wisest possible decision. I, I, I don't think that all of our giving needs to be there, but I do think it's actually really good for our hearts for, for some of our giving to live there. And so we've kind of continued to push more into that going forward. Well, I know both of you are familiar with the concept of a financial finish line, and that's a lot of what we talk about here on the podcast and our website. And for the sake of our listeners, I'll just say financial finish line in the way that we talk about it is essentially capping your lifestyle and saying, this is enough for me, this provides for me, which frees you up to give away money above and beyond what you need to kingdom building activities. And that is something that Keelan and I have been doing, and we've discovered this community of people that are doing this. So my question for you, Peter and Kendra, is how has the implementation of a structure helped you stay accountable to to be generous in the way that you want to be? So setting a finish line, that was, I thought more about that. I pushed back more about that. So maybe that idea came before the 40% idea in part, just because I personally was struggling with the the control security aspect of having plenty and savings. And sometimes people would ask me, what are you going to do with that money? And I didn't really have an answer. I just liked knowing it was there in case, in case of whatever, in case of a rainy day, in case of who knows, in case I wanted to do something with the kids when they got bigger, I don't really know. And so Peter had to push me more about the, the finish line part and I wanted a higher number. I wanted it to be excessive so that it wasn't really a finish line and that it still wasn't me giving up that like security control aspect. But I think then it, it has paralleled nicely with this idea of giving away so much. I, I think it's changed our, or me personally, it's changed my day-to-day mentality because in part, when we when you set a finish line, um, and like with my income as a physician, we will get there quickly, relatively. And so then the question is, well, what am I doing working? You know, it's hard work. I have six kids. I'm working nights as an ER doctor. Life is fun and full, but also pretty intense, a lot of weeks for me. And so it has made me in a good way, rethink my values from a day-to-day perspective and what I want and why I'm working and the other important things that I'm committed to through my career service, giving in that way, modeling, et cetera, all these other aspects. But it, it has made me rethink through that a lot. It also makes me think I will keep working a lot longer and that's okay. I love what I do. And again, there's all these other important aspects that go alongside with, you know, me working. And so I get to continue doing those. But I will say about Peter that as a health economist and a number cruncher and someone who loves the personal finance, he also loved keeping track of our net worth. I didn't ever really cared that much. I just, you know, whatever, there's money in the bank, it's fine. But he loved that number. And so we have a yearly marriage retreat Um, in which we, it's just the two of us. That's the retreat in which we talk about, you know, these main questions, one of which is finances. But part of that would be like a reporting of the number and where we were financially. We would set one year, five year goals for our lives and our marriage, but he would also set financial goals. And so I would say this has been a huge shift for him 
because that whole piece is, is gone. And that's great. It's not that we're being financially irresponsible, but it's just not the focus. And so I've seen that change in him through this process too. And when you guys talk about finish line, yours is uh, more of a net worth or savings kind of finish line, right? Yeah, we kind of have, I I guess there's two ways to think about it. And our, you know, the finish line is kind of like a guide rail. It's not something that's set in stone necessarily. But we picked a number because otherwise then there's no boundary if you don't pick a number. We did, which which is, which I inflation adjust, by the way, for anybody who's curious, (laughs) to our our, our most kind of close MSA. But to me, the finish line is flexible in the sense of if it doesn't, make sense or if lots of it's non-liquid and not kicking off income and one of us wanted to stop working or whatever, you know, like I'm, I'm flexible. Like it, it doesn't have to be that number. And, you know, so by giving 40%, we slowed down the accumulation. We really put the brakes on the accumulation, but we're still accumulating and assets are growing. And so we're almost 75% of the way there. And so then the question what this is, I can't tell you the answer yet, but you know, in the future, giving out of assets, I think that's going to be a new challenge because in my head, I like having assets. And so kind of depleting the asset, I think will be another kind of step of faith. But I think we also kind of have a finish line in terms of our consumption in the sense of we kind of live on 100,000 or less and 100,000 is pretty generous in like our healthcare is like 20 grand of it. So, you know, and daycare is like 20 grand. So we, we don't really live extravagant lifestyles, you know, and, and a big part of that is you have to make decisions like we don't have a million dollar house. We have old cars and we live below, I would say, the majority of our peers. And and I think that there is sometimes a challenge to that. You know, I know Kendra can talk about this kind of when we we make a lot of money. And we don't live on a lot of money. And, and we have peers who have much nicer lifestyles than us. There is a challenge. You always want to compare yourself to others. And so before I used to want to compare and say, well, gosh, I mean, sure, we live less than them, but man, our net worth is going to kick their butt. But, <laughs> you know, now it's kind of like, oh, we're capping our net worth too. But something actually Todd Harper says often is, you know, thinking about building your kingdom net worth. And so now actually at our marriage retreat, we talk about what's our lifetime giving, you know, what's our giving goals, kind of giving net worth in in a way and kind of thinking about flipping the perspective of like not the accumulation, but the giving away part. And how are we doing at that? So I remember, I remember Kendra probably doesn't even know this, but when I was younger, I remember thinking my lifetime goal is to give away a million dollars. And, you know, we're well on our way. We're almost, we're, we'll be there in the next few years. And that, you know, by 40, probably. So that's kind of crazy to think about the flip in our perspective over time. So, so anyway. I was hoping you could share a little more about something you mentioned earlier, which is the 501c3. And I think there's two things that are really interesting about it. One is you took kind of one-off giving that otherwise may not even be tax deductible, which may or may not be a significant factor. And two, you found a way to invite other people into this. Was that intentional or is that a realized effect of setting this structure up? I think when we first set up Pazar, as we call it, it was a, a little bit of a crutch and easing in for us new givers 
to lower the barrier and think about having this tax benefit of all this giving, all this scattering to make it easier. And I think it did. And I think it then created a good habit, a rhythm in our lives where we don't need that anymore, but we established the pattern of doing that. I do think it also has lowered the barrier for other people who may not have given to these other things. And so it has allowed us to invite other people, sometimes just as one-time gifts, or as we mentioned, this couple month endeavor where we are giving to our local community, it's allowed for some of those things. So for example, shortly after we started it, one of our friends wanted to help somebody out with dental care. And so asked if he could give that through Pizarre, several thousand dollars of dental work to someone. And so I think it was, it it helped him um, take that step. Yeah, I find that whole strategy extremely interesting. We've had multiple people on the show who talk about that, what they call non-deductible giving, which basically to individuals and spontaneously as God leads them. But I think you guys are the first people that we've heard who have found a way to make that tax deductible. I'm kind of curious if you could share actually a little bit of the logistics of how difficult was it to set that up? What's the maintenance like to actually keep that going? And how does kind of the money flow through, you know, if somebody wanted to set this kind of a structure up themselves? Yeah. So the IRS created a, there's a streamlined way to apply for 501c3 status now. Uh, I forget what the form is, but it's whatever the form you would have filled out easy to apply. And so um, they say these are basically for small nonprofits where your expected revenue is going to be under 50000 a year. And so we set it up. We, we put a pretty broad mission. Our mission is actually that uh, I just pulled it up here. Pazar is dedicated to empowering people to overcome hardship and injustice and encouraging others to live generously. So that's our mission. And uh, we set it up with another couple, my friend from from college who was part of Generous Giving years ago. And so we actually created the entity. We didn't expect revenue to be over 50,000, which is what we told the IRS. And so if your revenue is not over 50,000, you only have to fill out something called a 990N, which is a postcard, which basically says, basically revenue is under 50, send it in. It takes two seconds. Now, because we ended up raising money for this stuff with COVID, we went over the 50,000. So I had to fill out a 990 easy, which was not that complicated, but um, a little more work. And and we do have to keep track of all the expenditures, all the kind of donations and make sure we give people receipts and uh, make sure that we let them know that like, you can't allocate this to a specific thing necessarily. Like the money is out of your control once it comes to the nonprofit. That's just how 501c3s work. But our mission is very aligned with kind of most of the people giving. So so anyway, that's kind of how we set it up. And then we, interestingly, so I have a credit card. Kendra has a credit card. Matt and his wife both have credit cards. And then actually one of your old guests, Greg Bomber, is also on our board. So all of us have, you know, a credit card that is for the the giving account. And we keep all, you know, like we, it's, it's very legitimate. Like we keep all the records and whatever, and make sure, you know, like every, every gift we categorize as either 
empowering others to overcome hardship and injustice or encouraging others to live generously. We meet as a board a couple times a year and because it's sort of growing, but lots of people are excited about kind of this idea of being able to give and scatter to things that are not like organizations necessarily, but to individual, you know, like we gave somebody 500 bucks this week to fix their car, you know, stuff like that. That's just totally in line with the mission. So that's kind of how we structured it. And just to clarify, if you're planning on giving somebody 500 bucks to fix their car like that, you would transfer that money into your 501c3 and then give it from the 501c3. And then that's a tax deduction for you guys when you file your taxes. Yeah. So more practically, I'll put $5,000 in or $10,000 in, and then we just give out of that. You know, like you can do it every single time as a transaction if you want, but also we can give from our donor advised fund to it. Although that, that took a little work. So when we were doing the initial COVID effort, I got donations from Schwab, Charitable Fidelity, Charitable NCF, you know, there were like five of them. And every, every one of them wants to call and talk to the nonprofit because they've never gotten, they're, they're not in their system, even though they're five one c 3 approved. So, so it took a little time to kind of work with all the donor advised funds. Cause of course it had to be from like six different ones, but like Kendra said, I bet 70% of the giving to that effort was from donor advised funds. So if we didn't have, this entity, we couldn't have done it, or it would have been much less money that we were giving away. So I think that there's a lot of money kind of locked away that people would love to be able to give in this kind of way. So we're helping to kind of do that at a very micro level. <laughs> so. so you mentioned earlier that you set up a donor advised fund, and you're watching it grow, and the principal was growing, and it was appreciating. And initially, at least you weren't distributing out that money as quickly as you might. And other than Pizar, what other avenues do you pursue to distribute money from your donor advised fund? Yeah. So initially when we were putting money in our donor advised fund early on, I told Peter, I thought that was cheating in terms of giving because he didn't actually have to give it away. <laughs> so now we do, well, now we do a, a hybrid in that we put money in our donor advised fund, but we are trying to disperse it readily, but the funds that are not ready to be given or that we don't find a cause to give to right away, then, you know, we let that grow in a reasonable way. But I think that in part, it has pushed Peter and I to now put a lot of time and thought actually into what will we do with that money it's not just the the bizarre part, as we talked about, which is fun and easy. And part, it's easy because they're small things and they're just present. If you're looking for them, they're present in your everyday life. You know, give some money to daycare. Here's some teachers who, you know, need help with rent, blah, blah, blah. But when there's a larger amount of money that you want to be giving away, you have to put a lot of time and thought. It's harder to do that than I would have than I would have thought. And so Peter and I have have started to put a lot of our time into growing relationships, the things we care about, and in uh, researching these or looking into other avenues of, of how we can give. And so it's pushed us. It's more time, as I mentioned, it's more time than I thought it would be. Um, in part, that's great. Then we're involved. So one of the biggest things that we give to is foster care. Really how we've structured it, the bazaar that can go any which way. And then we've tried to 
create like a lane, like boundaries of what our mission is or what we care most about in our lives and, and funnel our giving to that to give us some structure and guidance. And so for us, that's uh, widows and orphans really. And so we mentioned we are foster parents and we give a lot of our money to the local foster care organization. And Peter gives a lot of his time to the organization too. He's on the board. He's been on the board for maybe four years now. And so is giving a lot of his time on a weekly basis to that. And uh, we're always looking for opportunities within that or related to that space then of how we can give meaningfully to catalyze change or change the system, things like that. Yeah, I'll add to that. So I do think it's very helpful for us to kind of have a, a focused area where we give with, like Kendra said, widows and orphans is kind of that space for us. You know, if we're given a thousand bucks or whatever, the level of kind of due diligence is a lot lower. Whereas if we're giving 20, 50,000, we really want our giving. Like I said, I kind of have this control problem, but I want to give very strategically. And so the foster care organization Kendra's talking about is called Embrace Families. It's the agency that oversees foster care here in Central Florida. Florida has a privatized foster care system. I'm on the board. And there's some big gaps in that there's 300 teenagers who are living in group homes that they don't have families for. And so some of the things we've done with our giving is to say, hey, what could we do to help move the needle on recruiting teen homes, on supporting the teen homes we have better so that they don't give up after two weeks with a tough placement. And so we've kind of seen some of our giving in that space as, as almost like like venture capital, kind of risky, risky investments with a high upside kind of thing that there's not a lot of appetite to put money into. You know, government contracts don't allow for that flexibility. A lot of donors kind of put restrictions on their giving to whatever, you know, they want to buy toys for kids at Christmas or whatever. So we think we really want to be strategic in our giving. So another, and honestly, our giving has in many ways ended up being a lot of startup kind of organizations. So some of our friends also started an organization here in central Florida focused on getting the local church involved and creating care communities around the foster families in their area, in their church, or, or just kind of who live near their building. And we were one of their first donors. And like, we heard the idea and we were like, we love it. We want to support it. Uh, we, we also give to an organization called Redeem International, which started a year and a half ago. We were one of their first supporters. They're focused on protecting in, they're in Africa, in Uganda specifically right now, but they are very focused on prosecuting people who steal land from widows. So when a woman becomes a widow, often she becomes a target if she has assets. And so the people in the community will come steal their land. And so as they prosecute this, these things, it becomes a kind of deterrent effect to keep that from happening in the future. And this was kind of a spinoff of IJM, um, if, you, if you're familiar with the International Justice Mission. So all of those are kind of in a way, entrepreneurial, but kind of hoping to move the needle in the space that we really care about and kind of God's put on our hearts is this this area of orphans and widows. Another example is recently we 
our daughter goes to a school where there's a bunch of teen moms. And so we just said, we called the development people and said, hey, we'd, we'd love to see how could we get, how could we help some of these teen moms who are graduating figure out, you know, what are their needs? What are the next steps for them, et cetera? You know, so a lot of it is we have to do some legwork to kind of figure out, like we could have just called them and said, here, here's a check for teen moms, but kind of by having a few conversations with them, I think it was a much more targeted kind of like, hey, we don't want you to just like buy them a $5,000 laptop, but we want this to kind of help them, whether it's getting a car or getting their first apartment or whatever tuition. But that all of that takes work and, and kind of effort. And so that's the challenge of because we're not giving a hundred bucks to this and that, it is tough. And I'll say one more thing about the donor advice fund. I will say we continue to accumulate in our donor advice fund, not because we necessarily want to, but again, we want to give wisely. And we're giving hundreds of thousands of dollars away every year at this point. So it's actually hard to deploy that much and do it well. For us, a lot of these things are additive, like we're not dropping organizations. So I I see a lot of this kind of, I don't think it's going to be hard to grow our quote unquote portfolio of things we give to. I should also say we give to our local church, but I actually, because I try to target it as much as I can, I, I do, I, I try to do unrestricted often for organizations, but for our church, I put for local missions. <laughs> so I, I put it in the little, uh subject line because I want to push our church that way too. So it's even a way with our giving to say, hey, our church, our church gives like nothing to missions. So we're saying, okay, we're going to allocate what we give to the church. We want it to get pushed because I think it helps to move priorities and and where the dollars go. So so we try to use all of our giving as strategically as we can. When we were talking before the show, you guys were kind of talking about this idea of a local alliance working through NCF. And I wanted to see if you could share a little bit more about what that actually looks like as far as strategies for giving. Yeah, I'll say this is a super early stage thing that we're working on. The National Christian Foundation is a donor advised fund, but they're, they also have local chapters. So there is one in Orlando. And I think there's a hundred plus million dollars from local givers sitting in the NCF accounts. And our lead here in Orlando said, hey, it would be great to give kind of a menu of options for our givers. But NCF always wants to stay very kind of Switzerland of like, we're not telling you where to give. But if you are asking, (laughs) here's some good options. And so what we've done is begin to build an alliance where we take givers who are interested in foster care and adoption, and we bring together organizations in Central Florida who are working in this space and, and and we're really working on creating a vision around what do we want this to, what do we want the mission of this to be? For us, we kind of landed on basically, we want foster parents to know that they are valued. We want especially teen homes to be retained and know what an important part of the process they are. So what we're trying to do is work with the group homes and the lead agency and the the Christian uh, nonprofits and all of them and kind of say, hey, could you guys put together a proposal where you collaborate together, but where you could help us to kind of move things forward, 
where you all working separately hasn't worked. So we're not trying to create a new organization. The Alliance is really just a matchmaker to say, givers who really care about this space, we're helping put together some proposals from organizations who are working in the space, but in new innovative ways that can help them collaborate and move things forward. And so we're hoping to basically be a matchmaker to say, and we'll have a little donor advised fund in between the two. But basically, hey, you really care about uh, foster care and adoption? You can give to this donor advised fund, which is funding the alliance. So fund alliance proposals or whatever. And you can get involved if you want. Or a lot of givers don't have the time to do the diligence. So it's kind of like a value add to say, hey, some of this stuff's pre-vetted. So I know they're also doing an alliance around kind of human trafficking they're thinking about kind of doing an alliance around a couple, you know, so maybe there might be five different alliances in Central Florida through NCF, where if you're a giver and you say, hey, man, I really care about evangelism, and then there's an alliance, for, you know, whatever um, area. So I do know human trafficking and foster care and adoption are the first two that are kicking off. So it's like, this is a new endeavor. <laughs> it may totally fail. I, I'm kind of leading it. And so it it feels very intimidating because I don't like failing and I have no idea what I'm doing, but, you know, <laughs> one step at a time. So it, it's exciting because it does feel like this could be a way to mobilize a lot more resources and, and to and to do something that would be effective. So that's fun for me. And, and if that does turn out to be the case, that will be an exciting way to so so we're going to fund probably the first proposal by ourselves just to show that you know hey this alliance is working you know this is not just me saying hey you should put your money into this i don't believe in it so that's kind of where that's going right now one of the things i love about hearing your guys story which i think is common to a lot of people who go through a similar kind of process is that the whole generosity and setting up a framework or finish lines or all of that kind of stuff is like just the starting point of where God just launches off a ton of ideas and, and ways that he wants to work through you. And clearly he's doing that in all of these different ways through you guys. But I love that once God has kind of freed our grasp of whatever wealth he's put in our hands to manage, then I feel like the fun part starts where he's just starts putting all kinds of stuff on your hearts about how to use that and drawing you into all kinds of causes. I mean, foster care being a big one for you guys. And just, you know, hearing some of these ideas about how you guys have looked at a lot of different innovative solutions, or even just with the the teen moms saying like, there's a problem. All right, let's address that and tackle that. And I think it's important to point out that the generosity really is the launching board for a lot of that, because it it just kind of spurs on so much creativity and, and openness to what God might do. Is that kind of been your experience in all of this? Yeah, I see generosity as kind of discipleship for us. I think it's the single most important growth area in our Christian walk. And as we continue to push into it, I think we continue to grow. And even as I'm anticipating, you know, the next faith thing is giving out of assets or whatever. You know, I, I just think that God continues to push us into things that we never would have done before. And that's good for our hearts and, and it grows our faith. Yeah, I do look at our giving, you know, again, it was so paired with us returning to our faith and returning to the church. 
but they are so like intertwined in terms of just our purpose and what we're doing with our lives and how we're living out our faith day to day. The generosity piece is so interwoven in all of that and just where our priorities are and where our trust is. And, and so some, yeah, I think Peter kind of hinted at this before, but sometimes I do look at our giving, like there's different purposes to it. Like, you know, we talked a lot about wanting to catalyze change and affect other people's lives and to do that well. And I think some of the giving is simply it's changing us and us just learning to be responsive to what we hear over and over and over again and to learn those lessons for our own lives, that it's not ours, you know, this open-handed, I like to say open-handed generosity. I think there's another piece of just modeling for our kids. That's it. That's what I want for them. And, and so that's another area where we're starting to put a lot more thought as our kids get older of how, how do we bring them in? How do we model that? It's easy to have our own priorities, but I think trying to transmit that and involve our children and, and really bring them into the joy of that is, is a different challenge too. And so we're trying different things with that too. Uh, you guys have mentioned a couple times about your involvement in foster care and adoption. And I was hoping you could just give us a quick overview of, of how you guys got involved into foster care and, and what that has looked like beside all of the other stuff that has been going on in your lives. So we have now been foster parents for, I think eight years. And I had mentioned before, but our initial or my initial interest in adoption, it probably started when I was young, but I was doing a lot of international traveling, international health things paired with my medical training. And I thought kind of career wise, that's where I would end up. And so I think maybe even without articulating it, I had in the back of my mind, oh, when I live there, when I live somewhere in Africa, I may adopt in that community. And so that was kind of my vision for my family. And when Peter and I got married for different reasons, I think he was also open to adoption. And so a couple years into our marriage, not that far into our marriage, I was in residency and he said, we aren't doing international things very much right now since you're in residency and there are kids here in the local community that need a home. And I think we should look into the foster idea. And so that was a, a frame shift for me in terms of what direction I was looking, but I went ahead with it. And in part, kind of the stars aligned, there was a class somehow that I could make most of the classes, which is a little unheard of with residency. It was like half a mile down the road from us. And so he's like, I've signed us up <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And so we, we did that and things often go quickly. Um, and they, they did, we initially kind of put a hold on, like, let's think about it. And then once you say, oh, we're thinking about it, you know, then pretty soon thereafter, a little person is in your house with you, which is, which is lovely. I think our initial goal was simply, or my initial goal was to grow our family through adoption. And so some states kind of let you pick the track that the kids are on if they're kind of shooting for adoption for these kids. They think that's how it's going to go versus some states, Florida being one of them, doesn't really, you know, sort the children and, and their projected futures in that way. But our our first placement, he lived with us for a year before we adopted him. And then we were thinking about having more kids to either try to get pregnant or to foster and adopt again. 
And so we got a call about two twin little girls. So we picked brand new babies, preemie babies. We picked up in the hospital and we, they stayed with us for eight months, but then were reunified with their mom. And that was obviously not our goal and not what we wanted, even though it was a, a positive situation. We we're so pumped for the mom, but on our end, it was heartbreaking for us. And, you know, I, I say that we did have a, a grieving period of time. I was pretty sad about it, but I think we came out of that phase then realizing we could do it more regardless of the outcome. We could be pure foster family. We could foster again if it led to adoption. And so that has started us on this longer journey of bringing other kids into our home and screwing our family. And then that I, I should mention, so our oldest is 21. And so when we moved down to Florida, I think we we moved on with two kids. And then shortly thereafter, we fostered two sisters. And so we had four littles. And my goal always was, you know, again, I'm growing my family, I'm kind of preserving the birth order. But Peter, on the other hand, is working in the foster care organization, and totally just running his mouth about teens and like, why aren't you guys doing anything about it? And there's all these teens not in homes, like this is not how it should be. So then we got a call and they said, well, we have this teen who lives very close to you and he's going to your local school and he won't be able to graduate if he can't stay there. And you've been talking a lot about teens. Won't you take a teen? So obviously the end of that story is he did move in with us and it was, it's been fantastic really. I mean, there's of course ups and downs all the time with any kind of children, but that was four years ago and he's totally part of our family and we love him. And that was, that was a total change. Not what we were thinking at all. We were thinking we would just take little. So. Yeah. I'll fill in a few more details. And I will say, I learned why, you know, people don't take in teens while it was great. There, there have been many challenges as well. And I think that it's taught us a lot, but also kind of given us a, a little more passion, but also insight into that, demographic and why there are 300 kids who don't have, we don't have foster families to take those kids. But we're in a tri-county area of like 2 million, 2.5 million people. It's just crazy to think there's over a thousand churches in those three counties, you know, so it's just crazy to think that there are kids who literally graduate out of the foster care system at 18 and good luck, you know, they have no family, they have no connections. Besides maybe, you know, some of their friends from the group home or some of the staff, but that's a very different thing than being part of a family. And so for us, it's really kind of solidified our passion. Uh, you know, I don't really know what's next for us. We, we had another baby after that. So that's how we got to six. But I think that that will be something we're a part of working on for the rest of our lives. And I, I do think this idea of generosity, it's very easy to think about financial generosity as being what is at the core of generosity. But I also think a lifestyle of, you know, being a foster parent, Kendra and I were talking about this before we came on, like we don't see our kids as like, oh, we're being generous by adopting them and having them as part of our family. But it is it's a decision that changes the trajectory of the rest of your life. It's a huge, huge decision. And I think the generosity 
it, you know, it kind of becomes more of your lifestyle. And so we don't think choosing to live below our means as us being generous or having a different non-traditional kind of makeup of our kids or any of that stuff. But at, at the same time, I think all of those things are so good for us. And I do think they are part of generosity and they're good for our hearts, even if that's not kind of why we originally went into them. But I do think generosity is not just writing a check. If that, you know, that would make life a lot easier and cleaner if, if it was just kind of like, hey, okay, if I can give 25% away or 40, whatever you want to call it, and say I'm a generous person, I just, you know, I don't, I just write checks. You know, I just think you can't stop there. Like there's always a next step. And, and so for us, I think foster care has been a big part of that. But, but again, continuing to dig into now that we know what it's like to be a teenager in the foster care system, what next, what's the next thing for us? And that's the Alliance and everything I'm working on is kind of around that question, but kind of figuring that out, I think is, is fun and transformative. I just think the takeaway is that out of these decisions that maybe weren't so profound initially, like to have a family, has grown such a passion for us that then is so interwoven into our lives and how we want to spend our lives. And then, of course, affects our finances. And so back to this teen idea, when Alex moved in, he was 17. It was three months before he turned 18 when he could peace out. And he sat in a group home half a mile from our house for three years where they didn't even try to find him a family. And I just think about all that lost time in his life. And while that wouldn't have erased all of his challenges, like that, that's so much time. And I think about all those other kids and lost time there. And so that heart behind it then fuels so many of these other endeavors for us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as I think back to a lot of the other people that we've talked to on the show, almost every guest that we've had, I think, to this point has been pretty directly involved in foster care or adoption in some way. And there's clearly a link between financial generosity and reshaping your life in that sense and foster care and adoption, I think. And I mean, that's so well demonstrated through you guys and, and what you've done with your life. But I can definitely see that pattern. And I love how you put it, Peter, also about how, you know, you're kind of inviting major structural change into your life and your whole family dynamic. And I have also seen that those kind of decisions that we've made in any area of life have been what have brought us eventually the most joy and the most freedom in our life is those kind of kind of stepping out and allowing God to just scramble everything up and restructure everything from scratch. And, you know, my wife and I wouldn't go back and change any of those kind of things, any of those decisions that we've made along the way. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, in losing your life that you find it. And it's not kind of the way that you typically would think, you know, I would think having millions in the bank and all the security you could imagine, uh, you know, perfect control over everything in your life, you know, of course, that's an illusion. But those things aren't what bring joy for us. At least that's what we found. 
Well, thanks so much, Peter and Kendra. It's been a pleasure hearing your amazing perspective and these amazing strategies that you've shared all the way throughout. We've learned a lot, I know, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing what you've had to say and more about your story. So we're just about out of time, but before we wrap up, I just wanted to get to our manager minute where we give you all as our guests a chance to share a strategy or something that our listeners who have set aside some money to give away can be doing today to best manage that money that they've set aside. So Peter and Kendra, do you have a suggestion for our listeners? I think the two things and one we've said and one we haven't said one is, you know, out give out of your passion and, and those can be so intertwined in your life. But I think also the reverse you will become passionate about what you are giving to. And so if you don't know yet what your passion is, maybe you can choose something that you want to care about and start giving some money to it and you will start caring about it soon. And so it goes in the other way too. And another thing that I think is fun that we haven't talked about is giving in community. So Kendra actually is part of a a giving group of women, mostly from our small group. Each year, everybody puts in, I think, a thousand bucks. And the goal is to give a life changing gift to somebody. So often it's, you know, car, rent, what, I, whatever, help with the down payment on a house, et cetera. They all submit ideas and then they kind of meet once or twice a year to, to say, okay. And then they vote on which, which one of these are we going to give this money to? And the goal is for it to be a life changing gift, something that kind of alters the trajectory of somebody's life. So, you know, you may not think of $12,000 as being kind of uh, life changing, but if it helps you get a car or pays your rent for a year to give you margin to go to school for a year and finish your degree or whatever it may be, those things are actually can be hugely beneficial. I know they've given people cars. They've helped pay down payment to for somebody to buy a home, like a kind of in a trailer park and this kind of stuff that really is, is fun. So So I would say I encourage people to give in community because it's a lot of fun and it's so easy to have this individualistic kind of, this is what I give to. When you do it in community, you get so many great ideas and you learn from each other. I think being transparent about your giving is fun because I love learning from other people. And so that would be my manager minute. Yeah, I love both of those ideas. And I think that both of those also help give people kind of a launching board for God to continue to introduce them to all kinds of other uh, opportunities for what they might be able to give to in their life and what he might be calling them into. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to join us today and for sharing a little bit of your lives and what God has brought you through. It's been a lot of fun for both of us here to be with you guys today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. Even better, head on over to the Finish Line forums. There you can discuss your thoughts about recent episodes, read stories of generosity, and ask questions about setting a financial finish line. Check it out at finishlinepledge.com slash forum. As always, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 22. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.